Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. The image of bluegrass is mountain music, played and heard at high altitudes in towns like Deep Gap, and remote mountain haulers across the Appalachian Mountains. But the earliest form of the music actually originated at lower elevations in textile towns across the North Carolina Piedmont. As far back as the 1920s, old-time string bands like Charlie Poole's North Carolina Ramblers were playing an early form of the music in textile towns like Gastonia, Spray, and Shelby in Cleveland County, west of Charlotte. Flew to Charlotte, it's less than an hour to get to Shelby. Some of it's state highway, some of it's interstate. It's not far from the South Carolina line. That's Craig Shelburne, a music journalist and managing editor of the Bluegrass Situation, who just recently finished writing the first official biography of Shelby native son, Don Gibson. So with Shelby, you drive in and it looks like a very similar to what you would experience in any other southern town, but then you realize there are signs there pointing to the Don Gibson Theater and the Earl's Crux, and you have to wonder, like, how did it happen that these two guys were from the same place? They didn't know each other well. Shelby was hometown of one of the most important musicians in the birth of bluegrass, Earl Scruggs, whose banjo playing was so innovative that it still bears his name, Scruggs style. It was also home to one of the greatest songwriters in the pop and country pantheon, Don Gibson. The writer behind Sweet Dreams, I Can't Stop Loving You, and other songs you know by heart. I can't stop loving you, so I've made up 
For both Don Gibson and Earl Scruggs, Shelby is where it all began. From the bluegrass situation in Come Here, North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, a series exploring the history of North Carolina as told through its music and the musicians who made it. I'm David Minconi, and this is Shelby, North Carolina. Shelby was just a mill village. It's the center of the county, the county seat. Scott Stinchcomb, Don Gibson's nephew. Our grandparents didn't work in the mill. They had a barber shop and a store. Shelby was pretty famous in the 30s. Again, Craig Shelburne. Because it had significant cotton crop. There were mills all throughout Shelby. I've worked in a cotton mill all my life. I ain't got nothing but a bar. It was a very thriving community. And as I was researching this book, I did a lot of research on Shelby about the world that Don was born into in 1928. And people had money in Shelby because of the cotton, even though it was during the Depression. Don worked in a mill for a while. Earl Scruggs worked in a mill for a while. I think both Don and Earl recognized each other as two Cleveland County boys who managed to make it in the music industry. That's Zach Dressel, curator at the Earl Scruggs Center, located in downtown Shelby. And although they were both in Nashville, I think probably their circles didn't align too frequently. But both of them have very similar stories. Don worked at a mill here in Shelby. And actually how he got his start was playing in and around the mill villages here in Cleveland County with other mill workers. And so they share that lineage of the textile industry becoming this unifying force for musicians and becoming a a place that really was a nest for a whole music scene. And you'd see that a lot throughout North Carolina and other places where mills were prominent. Another good example is in the Durham area where the tobacco warehouses were. That was a mainstay for the early blues scene coming out of North Carolina and going up to New York. I think of Don Gibson as a songwriter first. He did too, actually. But as a singer, he had a really smooth voice. Which was different than the hillbilly sound or the bluegrass sound that was expected from artists in that region. He was also an exceptional guitarist who idolized Django Reinhardt. But I think his songwriting is his biggest legacy. He wrote Sweet Dreams, which Patsy Cline recorded. Oh, Lonesome Me, which was his huge hit. I Can't Stop Loving You. It's been recorded hundreds, if not thousands of times. And uh, Legend in My Time. It's a really great Ronnie Millsap song. So many other songs. I think North Carolina should be really proud that he was one of the best. Don Gibson grew up in North Carolina. His dad died suddenly when Don was a baby. And that was a hard way to start out. I do think that loneliness and that sadness in a lot of his work can be traced to growing up in Shelby. He didn't have a happy childhood, but he grew up poor in Shelby. And he always felt shy and insecure about that. He wasn't educated. Uh, He dropped out of school in third grade. But he always had access to music. One of his jobs as a teenager was stocking records and jukeboxes, taking out the old ones, 
adding in the new ones. He also had friends who could play music, so he was in a lot of pickup bands too. His mother still lived in Shelby after Don found success. Don actually met his wife, Bobby, in Shelby. My name is Barbara Gibson, but I go by Bobby. She worked for the bank. I'm speaking from Shelby, North Carolina. He was back in town from Nashville to recover from a broken leg. <laughs> she was volunteered by her mother, who was a friend of Dawn's, to drive him to physical therapy in Charlotte. We married when I was 24 years old, and then we left and lived in Nashville in different places. But I knew Don for my whole life because he was friends with my family, my mother and aunt and uncle. So he started a music business here in Shelby with my family. So grew up along with my people. Well, I had known him all my life, but when he came back, he had a broken leg, and my mother and my aunt, Scott's mother, they took him back and forth for therapy on his leg, and we just reconnected. I was I was growing up then. I wasn't a little girl. <laughs> I was 24, and I was fully developed. You know, Shelby represented his beginnings, but it also served as a place for him to step out of the spotlight. And once he was off stage, he didn't ever draw attention to himself, which is pretty unusual for an entertainer. He could just be himself around his family. And his wife, Bobby's family in particular, meant a lot to him. He knew them before any of the fame came around, and he always felt very comfortable around his wife and his wife's family. And they liked him, you know, as a friend rather than just as someone who was famous. Number one, he was a decent person. Very honest, and he was very a good man. He would give you the shirt off his back. Mostly from my family, because my family were always giving people. His family didn't have anything, but my family was always giving. Not saying they wasn't good people, but her granddaddy was a pastor, and they had quartet, religious, that type, Southern gospel, and they were always doing things for people and giving people the things. In Knoxville, there was a guy that wrote Elvis song, Crying in the Chapel. You know that song? You saw me crying in the chapel. So he lived in Knoxville, I think, and had a publishing company. And so he hired Don to come in and sing demos for these songs. So then Don asked, can I put one of my songs at the end of it? And he said, sure. So he recorded, so Don recorded one of his own songs and sent it to Nashville. And Hank Snow recorded it, heard it at the end of the tape and recorded it. And that's how he got his first cut. And he was walking down the stairs at the radio show and the idea for Sweet Dreams came to him, but he didn't have any contraptions with him to record it, like no notebook or recorder. So he just kept singing it to himself in his mind until he could get somewhere to write it down. But Don got to start really on the radio too, but he was very mellow, very smooth voice. And it took a while for everybody to kind of catch on that he was different. I guess in 1958, when Olin and Me came out, the whole world kind of figured it out. It was instant stardom. For Dawn, that's, that song changed everything for him. Olin and Me was like four weeks at number one. It's huge, huge song in 1958. People forget he was the first guy to get a gold record out of uh, Studio B before Elvis even. Back in the day in Nashville, you would get a publishing deal and Don wrote for A Cuff Rose, which was a powerhouse player in the publishing world at that time. And he recorded for RCA Records too. So, you know, he made money as a performer. He made money by selling records. But when you write songs like Oh Lonesome Me and I Can't Stop Loving You, you're generating a lot of money publishing. So that's where the substantial revenue came from in his career. 
and those songs have been recorded so many times in different decades that that money kept being generated. By the time Don Gibson was making a name for himself, fellow Shelby boy Earl Scruggs had already emerged and become one of the most famous musicians in bluegrass. When people think of North Carolina music and they think of banjo, again, Zach Dressel of the Earl Scruggs Center, they're immediately going to think of the type of banjo music that Earl was playing because it has had such an impact that today people are still playing the same Scruggs style that we've been playing since Earl came on the scene in the 1940s. And I, I think that speaks a lot to just how big of a significance he had in the music world. Though Earl became well known for popularizing his famous three-finger picking style, he came from humble beginnings. Earl was born here in uh, Cleveland County. He was born in a small community called Flint Hill, which is just south of Boiling Springs, North Carolina, which Boiling Springs houses a Gardner-Webb University, and it's just west of Shelby, where we're based. The Scruggs home place, it is still standing. It's impressive that it's still there because I think when people see the house, they come to the full realization of the world in which Earl was born in, which is, it's a small house, as you could imagine. They did not have a lot of money and it is very clear, but what they had was a fantastic family who all really cared about each other. And that was obvious through interviews you hear with Earl and interviews that you hear with his brothers and his sisters. What was he like? Give us an honest, an honest answer. Uh-oh, I, I better not do that and him standing here. American genius looked like all children. Yeah. He doesn't look like one of the Scrooges, that's all I can say about it. <laughs> and he was born into a tenant farming family. His father, George Elam Scruggs, and his mother, Lula. His father was a big musician, and so he was somewhat of an influence. Unfortunately, Earl's father passed away when Earl was only four years old. And so he's always said that he remembered his father, but he doesn't really remember his father playing music because his father had battled an illness for almost a full year before his death. However, Earl's mother played the organ for church, so there was always music in the house. His brothers, Horace and Junie, played a lot of music. It's in fact on Junie's banjo and Earl's father's banjo that Earl learned how to play banjo in the first place. We have both of those banjos here at the center today, which is really cool and something that we really appreciate that the family was able to loan those objects to us. So Earl picks up playing banjo from his family. And in those days, music was something that occurred on a nightly basis for a lot of farming families because, you know, Earl's family didn't even have a radio until he was in his teen years. Early in his life, radio did not play a major part. It was different. He was learning from the actual musicians themselves. There were other people doing three-finger style at this time, including banjo legends like a Smith Hammett, a Snuffy Jenkins was starting to get into it, these kind of guys. It's worth noting that DeWitt Snuffy Jenkins was among the earliest banjo players to play in a three-finger style. Young Earl heard him play on Charlotte Station WBT's Crazy Barn Dance program in the 1930s. He was so moved, he later made a point of buying Jenkins' banjo. 
It's the one he played on Foggy Mountain Breakdown. As good as he perfected it, it was. Earl had said in a lot of his teaching books that Snuffy Smith was a great influence on him. That's Cherryville native and bluegrass musician Darren Aldridge. And I think some guys around the area at that time was doing a little bit with maybe three fingers throwing a third one in there you know there was a two-finger style which i demonstrate at the scruggs center of using your thumb and your first finger to get that kind of sound and i think earl was actually hearing those people play because they were from around this area he had access because of where cleveland county is located Earl would have had access to hear music coming up from the upper part of uh, South Carolina, which was also having a major bluegrass movement at that time. And then he would also have access to music coming down from the Appalachian Mountain region. Because we're so close, Shelby is only an hour and a half from Asheville. We're on the cusp of being a part of that mountain tradition of old time music. The story goes that he picked up the three-finger style almost accidentally. He had gotten into an argument with a brother and went back into his room and angrily started playing the banjo and wasn't really thinking about what he was doing. Man, from the story I heard from Horace was they was over there in Flint Hill at the house, and I think Earl was in his bedroom. And it got Horace said he got real aggravated. He was trying to work on something, and they was picking together, and he kind of went and shut himself in his room and come out and Horace always would say, man, I've got it. And the next thing he knew, he was playing Reuben in a three finger style and he runs around the house, jumping and screaming and saying, I got it, I got it, I figured it out. And from that point forward, that was the style he largely used. Up until that point, he was using what was known as a two finger style, which was very common around that time. And uh, they would start practicing and, and he'd come up with that style of three finger roll pattern and playing Reuben and Cripple Creek and some of that. Horace used to say that them boys would practice together and get on one side of the house, like on the back porch, and start the song playing with the guitar and the banjo and then walk completely opposite around. And when they meet in the front of the house, if they were still in time, then they were starting to, to get their timing down pretty good. So Earl starts to play in and around Cleveland County for a number of years, eventually goes and works in the Lily Mill, which is in Shelby throughout the World War II era. That was when he started working. And at that time, it was peak war production, actually. So they were really busy. At the tail end of the war, gets together with a group to go to Nashville. And it's while he's in Nashville that he ends up auditioning for Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, who just had an opening for a banjo position. Lester Flatt told Bill that he didn't want another humdrum banjo player. He didn't want another traditional banjo player. And then as soon as he heard Earl play, he said, you have to hire this guy. I don't care what you pay him. You need to get him. They go on to play together for the next three years, turn Nashville upside down for a little other. The addition of Earl Scruggs' lightning-fast banjo runs to Bill Monroe's band created bluegrass music as we know it today. Monroe's Bluegrass Boys toured and recorded relentlessly. Around 1948, Lester and Earl split off because 
working for Bill was pretty tough. And in a lot of cases, at the end of the day, when you're splitting the earnings among a bunch of band members and Bill is taking his share as the band leader, there wasn't much left. And Earl was saying that really he wasn't making much more than he was making at the mill and had even considered coming back to Shelby and working in the mill again. But then he ends up hooking up with Lester Flat, and they end up creating the historic Flat and Scruggs. Bill Monroe predicted his old sidemen would never be heard from again, but Flat and Scruggs quickly eclipsed Monroe as biggest bluegrass act in the world. They were together 21 years, even though Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs had very different tastes, finally breaking up in 1969. After Flat and Scruggs broke up, Earl went and began to play with his sons. And the most amazing thing to me about Earl was how open-minded he was and how interested he was in trying new things musically, which was not at that time something you saw out of a lot of Nashville musicians. One particular thing that comes to mind is Earl's stance on the Vietnam War, which he came out opposed to the Vietnam War, which at that time kind of set Nashville on fire. I'm sincere with bringing our boys back home. I'm disgusted and, and in sorrow about the boys that we've lost over there. And uh, if I could see a, a good reason to continue, I wouldn't be here. Because Earl and Charlie Daniels, and Charlie Daniels were the two guys who were saying that maybe Vietnam was not a good idea. And so it really set him apart from his peers in terms of his progressive ideologies. And then at the same time, musically, he was, in a sense, forming a rock band with his sons in the Earl Scruggs Review, which was another kind of Southern rock band in the style of the Allman Brothers or in, in the style of other kinds of bands like that. That was something I've always found very impressive about Earl was that he was always so open to change and it endeared a lot of people to him more so than it turned people away from him. The Will the Circle Be Unbroken album probably would not have happened if it wasn't for Earl's early involvement. I was standing by my window. He was kind of the first person that the Diddy Gritty Dirt Band approached who said, yeah, I'll do it and I'll help you get other people to do it as well. In fact, there's a great story from John McEwen where he said that they approached Bill Monroe to do the first Will the Circle Be Unbroken album and Bill didn't understand and didn't want to be involved. And then when it came out and was a massive success, Bill called him up and said, if you ever want to do another one of those, please call me. And I really want to be involved. But that's kind of how Nashville was at that time. It was split in terms of who was going to go and progress the genre, who was going to go and progress the music and keep up with the times and who was going to try to hold on to more of the traditional styles. Earl's style and success influenced the generations that followed. Darren Aldridge would know something about that. Us growing up pretty close to where Earl was from, right here around Shelby, 
you knew the name. I, I went to Gardner Webb and clogged at one of the uh, homecomings for Earl over there many years ago. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it's right when Ricky Skaggs really got big because Ricky was there and was selling a lot of the, the bluegrass albums he did with Tony Rice and the first Sugar Hill record that he had released. And we clogged that day. And of course, Earl was there, but I had no idea that later I would meet up with his brother, Horace and Dr. Bobby Jones and, and Dean Jinks and play in a band somewhat with those guys and hear all the stories that Horace had to share with us and tell. And I guess one of my favorite, you know, memories was early on, I was probably maybe 17 years old and we got to go to Horace's house and Earl had came down to stay with him a couple of days. And we just had a living room jam with Earl Scruggs. That was quite the special situation for a kid such as I at 17 to get to do that, play with Horace and Earl in their living room in Flint Hill, North Carolina. You know, he always encouraged and we got to open up for him a couple different times when he came back to Shelby and play. And he was really proud of what me and Brooke had done. He knew my years with the country gentleman. She walks through the corn leading down to the river. Earl cared a lot about his hometown. He would come back quite frequently to visit. And he and Lester, Flat and Scruggs, came and played here in Shelby a number of times, came to Gardner-Webb and played a number of times, played at Gardner-Webb up until his death, really. And so Earl was always very proud uh, of where he came from. He would not be afraid to claim Shelby as his hometown, or he would not be ashamed to claim Shelby as his hometown. He always seemed very proud of being from here. But Earl Scruggs and Don Gibson weren't the only talent to come out of Shelby. There are countless undersung heroes that emerged from Cleveland County. There are many musicians from Cleveland County who might not have gotten the same acclaim as Earl, and Don, but are equally important to the identity of the region. Sonny Terry was a blues musician who would go to Charlotte to play on the radio. And so Charlotte is this consistent space for musicians to go and raise their profile to take themselves to the next level. Sonny Terry, he's actually one of our hidden gems that we have somewhat of a claim to here in Shelby. Many people would put him on the Mount Rushmore of blues harmonica players. He has influenced hundreds and thousands of musicians with his collaborations with Brownie McGee. He really came into prominence in the 30s and 40s and, and was a major part of the same folk revival that Earl was a major part of in the 60s. They just happened to be on two different sides of that coin. But in reality, Sonny Terry was born in Georgia to a family of sharecroppers. Uh, with the boll weevil taking out a lot of the planting in Georgia, families were being forced to move to places that had not been affected yet. One of those was North Carolina. And so what you start to see in the 1920s is a massive influx of out-migration from the upper part of Georgia into North Carolina, specifically into Cleveland County. And Sonny and his family was a part of this migration. So he comes 
to Shelby at a very young age, around 10 years old. And he didn't technically come to Shelby. He lived out closer to Polkville area, which is just west of Shelby. And he claims that he learned to play the blues here in Cleveland County, here in Shelby. Today, there are not as many signs of that as much as there are with the bluegrass thing in traditional country. There's still fingerprints of that today, but the blues scene is not as obvious unless you listen to people like Sonny Terry, who can name off 20 different people who influenced him here in Shelby. My childhood, where I am now, I ain't gonna worry. Some residents of the Shelby vicinity aren't unknowns. They're just not well known to be from the area like the great rock and roll hall of famer Nina Simone, who grew up about 40 miles down the road in Tryon. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. When talking about Shelby, it's important to note that artists such as Simone and Sonny Terry had to find their success outside of Cleveland County, a story not uncommon with many black and brown artists of the time. Only now are their local legacies starting to be publicly celebrated in the region. For example, Nina Simone's childhood home was purchased in 2017 for restoration, and a statue was installed in Tryon's downtown in 2010. We have a lot more to say about Nina Simone and Sonny Terry, and we'll be digging into their stories in more detail on a future episode of Carolina Calling. While Shelby did experience an economic downturn for a time, the effort to honor its musical heritage has helped revitalize the area. After the cotton industry had moved out of Shelby in the early 2000s, late 90s, a lot of businesses here in the downtown area started boarding up and people started moving out and it started to look grim for a while. Shelby had died. All the mills had closed and there was nothing uptown. And they formed a group called Destination Cleveland County and they thought, what is unique to Shelby? And they come up with Don Gibson and Earl Scruggs. They tried to develop uptown around those two people and it worked. A group of individuals came together in the early 2000s and decided we want to start a plan to bring back the culture of Shelby that was beginning to go away, bring back tourism, bring back businesses. And so that group was called Destination Cleveland County. And Destination Cleveland County had two anchor projects in mind. One was the Earl Scruggs Center, which is located in the historic Cleveland County Courthouse, which had before that time been Cleveland County History Museum. It had since closed its doors around 2000, 2002. And then the other project would be what is today the Don Gibson Theater, what was then an abandoned theater, 400-seat venue that had served Cleveland County for a multitude of years as a movie theater. They refurbished the theater for, I think, a little over $3 million, and it started having people come back uptown once or twice a week to see shows. You know, up to 400 people were coming to town to eat before the shows. Had it renovated for concerts and movies, and it really brought something special to downtown Shelby. It's one of those cool southern towns with town square and the courthouse in the middle and lots of shops all the way around it. And then they did the Earl Scruggs, and that's the old courthouse in the center of town, and it beautified the middle of town, and it got people coming back uptown every weekend, and the restaurants came back, and the businesses came back, and Shelby's thriving now. The Earl Scruggs Center officially opened in 2014, but renovations on the structure began in 
2010. This was a historic museum, but they came in, created a multi-million dollar project, redid the entire downstairs gallery space, put in state-of-the-art exhibits and exhibit cases. And then sure enough, what we've seen in the years since opening in 2014, the Uptown Shelby area has really become revitalized. Most of the businesses are full. We have a variety of restaurants, small boutique shops, and, and different kinds of things that have really brought life back into this town. It's the heart of Shelby over there right now, as the Scruggs Center is. And just having that, there's murals up of Earl Scruggs and signs, and you can walk around the square and hear music of him and Don Gibson. It's a wonderful thing. The city has really revived off of both the Don Gibson Theater and the Scruggs Center. Don lived in Nashville at the end of his life, but he's buried in Shelby. After his death, Bobby decided to make sure he would be remembered in Shelby, so she custom ordered this amazing monument. It's incredible, it's beautiful. Uh, and it's in the Shelby Cemetery, so if you're ever there, you really have to go see it to believe it. It's 26 tons of green granite, came from India. They had to do six feet of steel and concrete under it to support the weight. And she did a big bronze on one side with the same Hall of Fame bronze they put in Nashville. And the other side with a lot of his songs and the people who did it real big. And a big plaque across the bottom with the lyrics of I Can't Stop Loving You. And that was Bobby's dedication to Don that she can't stop loving him. Because the whole lyrics of that spelled out in bronze. But it's just a really nice monument. I think it was 12 feet tall. 14 feet wide, four columns, but she chose green granite because it was the color of his eyes. He thought it out big time. So if you were to go to Shelby now, you would see a very cool town. I love going there. We're trying to create Cleveland County as a musical destination, a place where people can come, see great music, be surrounded by great musicians, a place where musicians can come to play and feel like they are welcomed and invited into a, a place where musicians before them have found a home and found a space. With the Earl Scruggs Center and Don Gibson Theater, Shelby has a couple of places to show off its musical history while also showcasing the next generation. It's worth a visit. And that is a wrap for this edition of Carolina Calling, exploring the history of North Carolina music. Join us on our next stop across the Old North State, Durham. Carolina Calling is a production of The Bluegrass Situation and Come Here, North Carolina. The show is written by Jenna Warnicke and me, David Manconi. Produced by Shelby Williamson and Justin Hiltner. Edited by Chris Jacobs and associate editor Jenna Warnicke. Special thanks to executive producer Amy Reitnauer-Jacobs at The Bluegrass Situation and Billy Maupin with Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. Big shout out to this week's guests, Craig Shelburne, Bobby Gibson and Scott Stinchcomb, Zach Dressel, and Darren Aldridge. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots Music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Minconi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.